Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. Subway is having a 649 deal on footlongs, on very few footlongs. In my area, 649. So I got falafel, pickle, mayo, banana pepper, and pizza sauce without the meat. I've never tried falafel before in Subway. I didn't know they had it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit tastier than that veggie patty that they have now. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It feels so quiet down here. I haven't really spent a lot of time in this room and I'm trying to speak a little quiet because this house really echoes and after I finished my Subway sandwich, a friend of mine texted and said, hey, do you want to come and visit my little studio set for my TV show? And so I said, yeah, and I had to be there in half an hour. So dropped everything and went there and it was kind of neat very cool and I sort of wanted to see what kind of setup he has to have a little TV show I'm just curious and curious to see what he does because he really connects people he's really good at interviewing people he's very positive I really resonate and gravitate towards this person and so it was a great experience to be able to do that. And that's sort of what I think is cool about how the last three months I spent time mostly out and about, eating at restaurants, sitting in a coffee shop, meeting a friend and then sitting in their coffee shop, um, not really talking to too many strangers and things, not really having any bad interactions, but not having like if I was in mania, I would probably meet a lot of people and they'd be talking to me and things. And so there was three months where I was kind of by myself and also avoiding my historical relational conditioning connections, which they saw as me ignoring them. And interestingly enough, what I'm trying to say is my energy has shifted in this last week or so, and I can totally tell because I feel like I can be at home and I was deciding to be at home for the last couple days because I'm starting to feel like getting organized and researching a bit more on the computer and a sign that my energy has shifted is I have this big long to-do list that I'm checking things off and also I've written down a bunch of stuff to talk about and also in my notebook I have a lot more to talk about and I have stuff all over my desk that I want to talk about. 
so I have a lot to talk about. Whereas a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I remember saying to myself, this is really boring. I'm just sort of like, oh, I took these pills last night, I took these vitamins this morning, blah, blah, blah. So I've actually learned a lot by the fact that it's summer and I've been able to be out and about. I was spending time in the sun for a while, spending time walking, then sort of spending time not doing that much of anything. But I've definitely shifted. And I wasn't sure a few months ago if my troubled time started about mid-May or if it started when that kind of crisis heart poundy stuff was on June 20th. But I think it was actually mid-May because mid-May to mid-June to mid-July to mid-August, you know, it was pretty much, it was mid-August. It's the 19th now, but it's probably been a week or so since I switched. So I would take it more as the mid-May mark. And then now being mid-August, I'm starting to, well, it's more like a light switch. It's not like a gradual thing, really. But I had a couple hard weeks in May, and then I went to the island and had a couple good weeks, and then a couple challenging weeks. Came back, still kind of challenging, but overall, the three months from mid-May to mid-August, I was able to work. I didn't miss any work. I missed one dentist appointment. That's it. But it wasn't a crisis where I'm in the hospital and I'm missing things for a couple weeks. I'm starting to feel like I can plan a little bit more and actually go through with those plans. Like I made a hair appointment for Thursday. I'm going to try and eat raw oats the week I have the house to myself and then donate blood hopefully the week after that. So those are the sort of things that I'm planning to do. I'm still in the 30-day abundance challenge with Steve Pavlina and I'm, I'm finding it really helpful to listen to somebody talking about that on a daily basis or talking or listening to the recording. So it's kind of showing to myself that if I were someone, if I was someone like me trying to get this was and more thing figured out, I was someone like me, which I am. I feel like listening to somebody's journey or listening to how somebody processes things on a daily basis would get my mind possibly into processing things a little bit differently. And I've talked to myself a lot and the point isn't believe this or believe that, it's sharing the process that I've used with myself that over the years has helped me slowly but surely. It's been over two years now that I've been talking to myself in this way. Haven't been hospitalized, whereas the two years before that, or 14 months before that, I was hospitalized three times. And these last few months, I've learned a lot about myself. And when I first started talking to myself, I remember that I would want to talk to myself before doing almost anything else. And now I have wanted to talk to myself tonight, but somebody texted me and said, hey, do you want to do this? And I'm like, see uh, ideas and things to talk about. I'm going to go hang out with a real person. So I think that these three months have taught me to put um, people that I resonate with first. And I've been learning the last, 
I think I started trying to learn again a few weeks before I've been feeling like I'm sort of coming out of the negativity, which means that with all the energy I have, I don't feel like the energy of others can affect me so much. And so I'm feeling good about that. And like I said, I have a lot to talk about and I'm not going to talk about it in any particular order per se because that's usually how I do it. And I don't even really know where to start, but today, where could I start? Um, I don't like to give details about people that I know right now, but what I would say or will say is that I lent my mini trampoline to somebody who has um, trouble with their lymphatic system, let's put it that way. And since the heart doesn't pump the lymph, it pumps blood need to pump the muscles and things and balance to get the lymphatic system going. So I lent the trampoline and I got a little video of that person bouncing on the trampoline and it just really warmed my heart and made me feel really good um, that it could be helpful in some ways because I looked up and rebounding is good for that and I already do understand that. I've, I've done a lot of health research over the years. Um, you know, raw foods and living foods, and so I'm going to also lend them. I found the DVD that came with the Rebounder, which is about the immune system, and also this Bounce Before You Jump, which is kind of dated, and it's kind of lame, but why not? Oh, it's both, they're both from NEDAC. That's the Rebounder I have. I have a good one, and I was given it as a gift from a very generous person, and... Now I'm lending it out, and I feel good about that. So I'm gonna take a peek at this one because I can't remember what it's about, a boot, and um, lend that out. And the other thing I did was, I know somebody else who knows a little one that is having seizures. So I have quite a few brain books, and I was looking up some of the information and and copying the relevant sections about seizures and things and it does talk about ketogenic diet blah 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 I'm not an expert I'm just a resource and then I also printed out this thing about crystal children and indigo children and star children now why would I do that I printed off a bunch of stuff about seizures and epilepsy and things and one of them it's quite detailed about the awful awful rigmarole that a parent of such a child would have to go through you know it's, it's comparable to the awful rigmarole of somebody who gets diagnosed with a mental illness go to the hospital you know months later you, you, you stabilize on your medication in quotes and then you know, maybe you're kind of semi-functional and blah. And it's the same thing with the kids that are put on drugs for seizures. They're falling asleep during the day. It just sounds awful. 
So the first couple pages were like this awful news and I'm like, ooh, should I even give this out? But it paints a picture of the reality of it. But then in terms of printing this thing out about the crystal children and star children, it's tell telling the story of how these children are special and then some of them have telepathic abilities and it said somewhere that, um, let me look. So for example, from this thing I printed off from cywhelper.blogspot.com, they say they're talking about crystal children. Because of the difference in brain chemistry, the crystal children tend to suffer from seizures and epilepsy more frequently. Physically, their brains do not look different, but they do have a different chemical balance to them. The chemical makeup, which is different, is a higher level of neurotransmitters, which create more neurons, and also an elevated level of serotonin. Um, these special children, blah, blah, blah. What I'm trying to point out is, okay, there's these pages about epilepsy and seizures and pathology, but there's also another point of view, like crystal children, indigo children, star children. Um, I know a child with on the autism spectrum who now speaks very well but had trouble, and there's a blurb about that in here saying their speech is said to be delayed because their first few years of life they're trying to communicate their parents by way of telepathy. It's only later they realize their parents do not understand, leaving them to try to find a new channel of communication. That parents do understand making their speech delayed. Crystal children are also said to be smarter than the average child. A more sensitive child who can show empathy and love better than the human race today. Blah blah blah. So is it epilepsy or is it a special gifted child? Is it seizures? I don't know. My point is for me and having a mental illness diagnosis, I don't really think that it's that. Um, the trouble is being an adult, I sort of have to figure this stuff out for myself and um, there's more people out there that think the way I do. I know that for sure. I just found one today, which I will talk about. So for me, I like to look at things from a non-pathology type lens. So I would want to do that for anybody that I, that I give information about almost any kind of brain thing too. So I'm going to give this to that person. I might have to read all of it because the star children doesn't really um, apply maybe, I don't know, and it could be kind of weird. I don't want to be too weird, even though I am very weird. So, and the other point about that is when I have, when I've switched into this extra energy mode, I have extra energy to do even more things for other people, like things come to mind. If somebody says something, I'm like, well, there's something that I can share, there's something that I can do. So it's twofold. 
wanting to share um, the specialness lens or not special but different and having different capacities and um, also having the energy to look at these things and then also by looking at this for somebody else and reading this bit about the star children and how different areas of their brain are, are working if a child could be born like that the brain can also I feel mutate to use different structures midway through life the brain isn't fixed it's neurofluid it's not even neuroplastic so it can neurofluidly mutate to start to function in a different way perhaps based on um, what's happening in that person's life and what's happening in all of humanity so yeah and then in my research that I was quickly looking up epilepsy in the different brain books that I have like the brain diet the gaps diet um, different ones that I have that are about the brain in general and not only about um, so-called mental illness in quotes so when I was looking in this book which is a great book I saw this naturopath years ago and I had chronic fatigue like MS like something weird that was awful and I followed this program by seeing him and taking supplements and changing my diet according to what he said to do and I felt 90% better in five months after feeling like hell for five years so he's awesome for sure and so I was looking in the index for epilepsy and on page 617 so this is what I do I look for clues I look for little bits of my hypothesis which changes and I don't exactly know what it is but I know when I see a clue and so I don't even know really what section this is in in the book but epilepsy is mentioned on this page so that's how I looked at this page and read it so I'll read you this little quote here in 1998 a new type of medical research marker demonstrated that in the five human brains studied all five showed development of new neurons in the hippocampus these new brain neurons had to have originated from stem cells animal studies found stem cells inside the hippocampus so I think it's part of neurology that there's no such thing as new neurons that's the current belief but in 1998 which was 20 years ago they found that in the hippocampus there are stem cells that create new brain neurons in animal models I think they might have confirmed this in humans too because I've seen this this book is a little bit older now um, so to continue the quote these stem cells divide constantly some become identical daughter cells while some migrate and become nerve cells so this next line is what interested me exercise creative play and learning help increase the growth and survival rate of these new nerve cells injuries such as stroke or epilepsy can dramatically increase their replication rate 
So it's kind of saying that if somebody has an injury to the brain, like stroke or epilepsy, that will build new neurons because the old ones are damaged. So it's a signal to build new neurons. Well, what other kind of stress or trauma to the brain signals growing new neurons? I feel that if somebody's traumatized emotionally or physically, that is possible, that it could be a possible trigger to also generate new nerve cells. And it's really interesting because it says that exercise, creative play, and learning help to increase the growth and survival rate of these new neurons. What's interesting about that is a person who is in so-called mania. They do a lot of running around. They do a lot of exercise. Maybe not purposefully, um, but I was very active. I was very creative and playful. So creative play and learning. I was always learning. Mania to me is a hyper-learning state. The brain is restored to learning for itself from its own subjectivity and its own creative perception based on what it sees in the moment. So it can create quite different behavior. But what I'm saying is that if these three things are a big part of what is happening when somebody is in so-called mania, like the creative play was very playful, very creatively playful. Creatively playful in one's perceptions. That's why one is very vocal and has a lot of new vocabulary and is poetic and metaphorical and one's playing with words and it's creative and that is a learning process the brain is in a hyper learning state in that it's processing so much information and that what i'm trying to say is that that could be something that is concurrent with the new nerve cells that are growing that i believe is happening in so-called mania there is i feel um a burst of new growth of neurons. So this is only talking about in the hippocampus in this blurb here. And again, I'm not talking about writing a factual book here. I'm talking about finding meaning in some of the science and making an analogy or making a little hypothesis based on clues from divergent fields. And that's something that somebody with this type of brain, you know, so-called quote bipolar, Oops, that's one of the capacities that we have is to make meaning for ourselves. And I wrote down somewhere that if I wasn't diagnosed as being mentally ill or crazy, I don't know if I would be spending my time looking for clues in books about health and the brain. I'd probably be out having fun, exercising, and being creative and playful. But what I've realized recently is that, and this is something different than I was saying to myself before, I've realized recently that I need to possibly, I don't know, it's another experiment, go back to words, extrapolating words. You know, first there was the word. Because the trouble is I feel partly is when somebody gets in the groove or in the wave of extreme states of consciousness, so-called mania. I'm only calling it that for convenience because 
people like me are trying to build a bridge of understanding. So I'm only using that word. So if somebody watches this, they're not like, well, what is this person talking about? I'm talking about what, what medical science would call mania, but I don't think it's a medical problem um, at all, really. Um, when it's objectified and the lens of that knowledge is, is overlaid onto what somebody is um, presenting as, then it can be, it can make anything into a medical problem. Like look at the big book, the DSM, or, you know, anything that goes wrong with the body, it's a medical problem. And then there's some kind of drug and um, <clears throat> they can be helpful for sure in certain times and places. But what I'm saying here with this blurb, I think it's very important to show how survival rate of new nerve cells in general, probably, is um, increased by learning, creative play, and exercise. And I think the thoughts uh, that we've been programmed with and conditioned with growing up through education and family and media, those are just old tracks. And in order to have new thoughts and ideas, we have to, I don't like have to, but we need to learn. And if we learn, it kind of makes sense that a possible new neuron would grow or a new connection, which requires um, movement and growth of the nerves. It requires some kind of fluidity. So point being what I just said, plus... When I look up something for somebody else, I often find some of my own extrapolations, like in this book, which I think was a very important clue. So when we're playful with words and we're moving about and we're learning for ourselves, that's gonna um, help with to stabilize whatever ner new neurons are growing. And hey, I'm not going to be a scientist and spend the next 10 years researching that. I'm going to make the extrapolation. I'm going to make the meaning for myself. Self, And that's meaningful to me, to make some kind of meaning for myself. And to show that there's some kind of intelligent process going on here. I don't think all of this is a mistake. And... go with that um, I signed up for a webinar called process oriented approach process oriented approaches to altered states and extreme states of consciousness and I got an email today that said that there was a problem with the recording I couldn't watch it live I had to get ready for the day and I thought well there's gonna be a recording so I'll watch it later there was a problem with the recording, so they sent the PowerPoint slide. And the PowerPoint is 70 slides, so I'm not going to talk about it. But I didn't really know what process-oriented approach meant. And apparently this man, John Harold, is, has a master's in process-oriented approach. So I didn't know it was like a master's level type thing, but um, I'll just move this so I can look at the slide. So this is quoting one of his slides, not to copy, but he gives a shout out 
to anyone whose behavior and language don't make sense to those around them, to anyone experiencing a reality noticeably different from the one the majority believes is happening, to anyone who, who's been told they shouldn't trust themselves, that they're mentally ill for having such experiences, to anyone who's looking for better ideas than, quote, mental illness. And so that's one of the very first slides. And um, I'm like, okay, this guy resonates with me for sure. He is trying to do the same thing that, that I've done. He says, to anyone who's looking for better ideas than mental illness. You know, that's what I've been doing with myself for the last two years. I've been exploring all these different ideas with myself. I've been looking for these ideas. I've been creating some of the ideas myself. I've been extrapolating little bits of science to my ideas. And it's not a fully formed thing, and that's why it's disjointed. And there's a clue somewhere and I talk about it. And then there's another clue somewhere and I talk about it. But I don't necessarily link those clues because I've already forgotten about the clues from two years ago. So the point about this for me is to just keep exploring the clues. And I feel that through maybe one day talking or listening to this John Harold guy who he has a bunch of videos on his website that look pretty good. Well, they look really good and a lot of other people who are they're doing this sort of work in their own way so the more we start talking to each other or sharing videos and watching them the more we start building this whole network of other ideas that we can listen to and and see if they resonate and I don't even think it's about trying to memorize them all and create some big hoopla out of it. It's more a matter of re-remembering what we've experienced and trusting in our experience and um, trusting ourselves. And we go for help from the, the system often because we're afraid. But the more we understand and the more we have the capacity to understand I feel the fear gets less and less. That's what I feel in my own experience. And so his website is johnherald.net. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-R-O-L-D dot net. And uh, a few things I wrote down from his slide presentation that are funny here. Um, obviously, I didn't hear what he said about each slide, but one slide said, quote, be a little more psychotic all the time. And I've said, um, embody your mania. That's what I've said for myself. And um, he also said, something valuable is trying to make itself known always. And I feel that's true. And I think there's so much to say, I don't even know what to say first. And then he also said, taken literally, I was seen as dangerous. Taken metaphorically, I could be understood. And that was interesting because I've thought about how we go into um, a metaphoric state of consciousness, seeing things in terms of simile and metaphor and 
all these different lenses, but we aren't approached metaphorically. We aren't approached as if we're in a state of metaphor. And I remember sharing one time that Ron Unger said that we often speak in metaphor when we don't have the words for something. So we have the words for all that we know as humanity or think we know, but we don't have the words for what is outside of that. So we often have to make metaphors. And for me, the process that I'm in with myself here is not only um, making those metaphors with that unknown, because I'm not as connected with it per se, I don't think, but making extrapolations to some of the other brain science that happens that's not necessarily about, quote, mental illness, but it extrapolates to it. It kind of explains some of it. One can take what they're studying in human potential and and overlap that in the ways that they do overlap with the experience of so-called bipolar. And I wrote down that in a way, in the normal quote state of consciousness or consensus state of consciousness, we're living in a bad metaphor. And what I mean by that is that state of the brain is almost a metaphorical state because it's not actual. We're raised to think that status matters, that that um, position matters, that power matters, that um, aggression matters, that winning at somebody else's expense matters, that the way we're educated matters. Like so many things matter, but they're human constructs. So in a way, they're metaphors. They're not really literally how life is. And I feel like when we go into those altered states and those metaphoric type states of consciousness, when we have access to new words and our brain is trying to figure it out, we're actually trying to figure out how, how the universe really works, how we're really interconnected. We're not divided and separated. Um, and when we think we're separated, we act based on conflict rather than dialogue and trying to understand so if we really knew that somebody else was literally us too, not our body, but our consciousness is the same, then we would operate in a different way. So I feel like those altered states of consciousness, those extreme states of consciousness, are trying to get the brain more congruent with how things actually are. That we don't have these separate minds. It's not like, my brain evolved in isolation. Um, as Krishnamurti would say, we all have the same brain. It's the same human brain. It's gone through the same evolution. It's the same brain. And I've realized that a lot of the stuff that's weird that happens can actually be partly explained by the fact that we don't exist in isolation. We exist in relationship. Somebody was telling me today that they woke up once when their dad was having a stroke. Like, two minutes into the stroke, they were awake and there. Because we're in relationship, so something is signals in that relationship and comes into the brain. Like, we're not separate. We're not these isolated things. So, anyway, what I'm trying to say is, 
what we see as reality, like how we think the world is and how, you know, all this media crap and things going on in the world that are just terrible, that are over-reported and that's not really how it is. And um, the other thing with that, when I was talking about how he, how John Harold said, be a little more psychotic all the time. And I talk to myself a lot about embodying one's mania. I actually feel when we embody our mania and gesture in that way that is congruent with how, how human consciousness is really connected, that makes people very uncomfortable and it gives us a way. So if I'm like really happy for no reason and people know me, they're like, oh, what's up with her? Whereas if I take that energy and I allow it to change my brain cells and I allow it to give me access to new languaging and understanding of the way things work and then share it in dialogue instead of sharing it in gesture. Before I might have said, oh, you know, gesture your way to that space, but um, I don't know if that's the right approach. For example, if I was in psychosis or really f afraid, when I was on the island by myself, I saw the subtle gestures that wanted me to like maybe call for help or maybe be angry at something, but there was nothing there. There was nothing. So I could see the energy wanting to do that, but there was nothing there to act on. So then it couldn't act and it just dissolved. So... It's like a subtle hook. And in the same way, I think we can get hooked into thinking that the world is already that wonderful way. And gesturing in the happy, manic way prematurely. I don't know if this is true. But like, for example, or finding the right environment to be that way. Because right now, I'm at home. And I've been kind of like standoffish with who I'm living with. So if all of a sudden I was different, I don't know how they would feel. But part of me feels that these historical figures in my life, based on memory and what I did years ago as a teenager and blah, 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 like hearing these old things that never enter my mind, um, there is some anger about certain things, which, uh, anyway, what I'm trying to say is these people don't, like, deserve, that's not the right word, they don't deserve to have a manic person around. So, in this environment, I will be sort of stoic. I will keep to my words and I'll share them with myself, I'll talk with myself. And I'll save the, the gestures for, for others when I go to California, when even doing a bit of research for people that I know with certain challenges or something like that. Channeling the energy into that versus being like, whoa, everything's fine because, you know, everything isn't fine. Some people I know are suffering. That's not fine. So for me to be super ecstatic for no reason is kind of inappropriate. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm just saying if I was to go totally manic, which I don't think I would now, then it would give me away. And then, so I don't want to give myself away. 
I don't want, but the other thing is, I'm not being super clear here because I've written a lot lately today and the other days and I don't know how to get to it all and it doesn't matter, but if we don't act, if there's some kind of understanding, there is a change in the brain. This is what I want to say. So if I act all happy, I'm like, oh, look, like mirror my behavior because I'm so happy. And other people might mirror that a little bit through the mirror neuron system. Mimicry. I could try to change the world through mimicry, getting people to mimic the mania. But the other way to change the world is covert. It is understanding, which changes the brain. And when it changes my brain, it changes everyone's brain a little bit. Just a little bit. So I might think, well, I need to show these people, these 10 people around me by gesture. Or when I understand and it changes my brain slightly, it changes everyone's brains too a little bit. I don't know if the one it's the ones around me or it ripples outwards or what. We all have the same brain. So I think there is a shift. So if I learn something... I don't necessarily have to act it out um, because I think that gives it away more. So this is more of a covert way of, of creating change. Like I think me talking to myself creates change in the whole field. Um, maybe it creates change in me in such a way that one day I'll speak to other people who are doing a similar thing and I'll have been talking to myself and thinking about things in different ways from different perspectives for many years and so have they and then we can talk about our perspective. But I also feel that it changes the whole field somehow, giving voice to these things and if I share it, it'll be a different kind of change. But for example... Um, I couldn't get a hold of my brain twin for a day or two and he was sending me email forwards about like Eckhart Tolle and stuff in the middle of the night so I knew uh oh I don't think he slept and then I couldn't get a hold of him and he said he called me and then he didn't I'm like uh oh and so when I finally talked to him last night he said that he went into like a bit of a paranoia and did something and he was afraid that maybe his parents would get mad and kick him out. He lives with his parents right now. Hasn't always, but does at this moment. And he was saying that his parents, like, put their head hand on his head and said something like, don't worry, it's okay. Like, it sounded like they were really sweet. Like, he didn't go into tons of details. And then he said they even laid down beside him and said... You know, if you sleep better in your own room, go ahead and blah, blah. But it just sounded like they were really compassionate and kind. And he was kind of afraid and things. And and then he was able to go and sleep. And he maybe took extra meds or something. I don't know. But it just sounded like a totally different flavor of, of what I've heard before. Like before he might end up in the hospital. So even though I didn't really pass on any of my knowledge of what I do to keep myself safe on my own without someone being so kind as to put their hand on my head and tell me it's okay. Um, 
he was able to have that experience. And I don't know how out of hand it got and if it's fully back in hand, but I feel like, I don't know, I don't feel like I had something to do like with that, but him and I have talked a lot and, you know, maybe people are going to start having people be more understanding when this stuff happens and be more compassionate and just be like a safe energy for this fear to move through. And I was really surprised and kind of heartwarmed by what he shared. And he's not fully out of that state yet, so I don't know if he realizes that. But when I said, oh, that's really sweet, actually, comparing to what I've heard in the past, um, then, yeah, I don't know. I just thought, oh, wow, that's a change. And, um, yeah. So, also, so the slideshow is really good. Um, and then John Harold's website, he has a page called Services. And, um, um, I think it's really cool that he says, if you go to johnherald.net slash services, he says, warning, my views are not mainstream. Forget what you've seen on TV about this thing called mental illness. I use a different framework informed by my own experience as a psychiatric patient, as well as my master's degree in process work. Um, I employ a non-pathologizing approach, one that doesn't not does not assume illness. And he has... Um, yeah, he said, I believe that by leaning toward, not away from disturbing experiences, we not only make meaning of an experience, but we make it less disturbing. And he says other things. I don't want to read his whole page. You can easily go and read it, but I just think it's very well laid out. And even though I personally don't have a master's degree in process work, I've been doing my own process, which I sort of called self-dialogue, because I don't have someone like this John Harold, so I, I could be employing his services, but I've been talking with myself and doing my own thing, which might not be as effective, but is definitely more cost-effective. And Yeah, he says, I strongly believe unusual sensations, altered realities, and big moods are purposeful, meaningful experiences. So, yeah, his slideshow is really good. I'm sure all of his talks on his website under presentations are good. Um, I feel like it's possible that one day I'll be able to do maybe something similar, like, I don't know, get some training. I really like what Ron Unger does and this guy, John Harold. Um, sometimes it fascinates me how people had their intense crisis start later than me and they're already, they have this like really nice website and they're doing presentations and I know why I'm not doing that yet, but there are people who are out there 
um, really providing benefit and value for people by saying, hey, it's not necessarily a pathology. And that's what I'm saying with myself, but I'm doing a different method. I am doing self-dialogue. I'm going to keep going probably, it'll probably be at least three years that I do this before I share. Because um, I have my reasons and I'm learning a lot and I feel like if I shared that would skew what I'm learning for myself in my own process. And I do feel like people are able to pick up on what I'm saying to myself even if I haven't shared it. Like my understanding of how consciousness works, I've probably gone into it a lot, but I know saying these words out loud, even if no one quote can hear me, the universe can hear me. The algorithm of the whole cosmos can hear me. Um, my brain can hear me and everyone has the same brain. So to some extent, all brains are hearing this somewhat. And if I'm able to stabilize in, you know, the growth, the new neurons that I talked about and using different brain structures, which talked about, it was talked about in the crystal children thing that I was reading. It says they're using different structures of their brain, their brain. So, hey, what it's saying is there are different structures that can be used. And this is something I wrote down to myself is we're not using our brains. There's nobody there using the brain. Like the universe uses our brains. Human thought constructs use our brains. We don't use them. We're being used by a system of thought that is programmed into us and we act according to that and altered states are trying to change that program and release us from the prison of that and allow us to be free to look and perceive creatively for ourselves without the projection of thought. So the thoughts that are going in our head are like a projection it's just being projected. There's no projector. There's not a self that's projecting this. It's just thinking naturally projects and then makes that very small, tiny, incy-bincy bit of the whole field of light and energy and vibration that's around us. It makes that little bit salient. So we think, wow, that person's such and such. When we could have been looking over there at the flower, you know, like thought is, is projecting. So I wrote down that when mania comes in or that energy, it's like turning on the lights. We feel like we're awake, but the trouble is and what um, makes it challenging at first, at least, is we forget to smash the projector. So imagine we're watching a movie in the dark on a projector. That's the equivalent of moving in life according to thinking and we think that projection is real we think the movie on the projector is real and then when the energy of so-called mania comes in lights are on and we look around and we could have realized that the movie was being projected on the side of a rock and we're actually in paradise like there was this projector set up in paradise in heaven on earth and we're sitting there watching this projection 
on this rock. And then the lights come on. We see the beautiful paradise. But we forget that the projector's still there. And we forget to smash it. And the, the projection is thought. It's not my thought. There's no my thought. It's a whole human pool of thought. And we've been conditioned with certain bits through our experience. And there's no thinker thinking thoughts. But there's thought going on. And by virtue of it going on, it projects. And it thinks that it knows something about the world. And so perception, that isn't even perception. It's like conditioning. It's like being hypnotized and half asleep. When our brains are operating in that projection mode, we're kind of half asleep. And the light comes on. We can see so much more of actuality, the heaven on earth. And then that perception of all that new information moves us in different ways we're like oh what's over here what's over there what's here just like me today i was like i've been in this room not as much but i have been in the morning i can't see anything in here like i see my vitamins i take them in the morning then i leave and so today being home it's like oh look i have um i moved my essential oil diffuser in here i'm like oh make it smell nice in here and then I made my ion machine filter the air into here so I had more oxygen. And I did my laundry and I got the hair out of the drain in my bathtub so it drains properly. I cleaned the tub, I cleaned the toilet, I cleaned the sink, I vacuumed the floor. I um, did something for work. I texted a bunch of people. Like all of a sudden I have access to so many more gestures because I'm able to see what's around me. And not only just see it, but see the meaning of it and and see what I can do with it. And it's not even I do it because like I had this list of stuff to do and I was just sort of doing parts of it, but not like, oh, I'm gonna do this first and that first and that second or whatever. So when the light comes back on, this energy, one is able to see so much more and thus behave in a different way because we're able to act on everything that's around us. What's actually there, not a projection, it's actually there versus acting based on what we're projecting and thinking is there, which is usually something about some kind of psychological human construct, which isn't even real, like the self. Anything that we think about ourselves psychologically isn't real. It's part of the program. It's part of the algorithm where we act separately. And um, so that was something else I was going to say. I remember a long time ago talking about how this whole mental health thing is kind of like the weather. You know, there's storms, there's sunshine, there's rain. So the moods or whatever, I don't know what moods are. It's kind of like the weather. So I was thinking that this difference between when I feel like I'm sort of surrounded by historical things coming at me, like memories and people coming at me with their memories about stuff. And I can't really see anything. Like I'm stuck in this history and it's a lower energy state because it's based on the past and the past is no longer here. So the brain has to lower its energy in order to think about something that's not here. If we're in contact with something that's actual, it energizes the brain because we can 
actually do something. We can participate with it. So the brain goes, it's in a historical state. And then this last week or so, that was a three month time. And this last week or so, it has changed into more of a creative state, a perceptive state, an actual state. And that's higher energy. And I was thinking that's kind of like the seasons. So I could think, oh, I'm no longer in a low mood. Um, I wasn't depressed, but I was probably resisting certain interactions and knowing they wouldn't go the best because I was in a more of a negative state. And, you know, it's sort of like hibernation. For three months, I wanted to hibernate. And, or it's like the three month of winter when not much is blooming. You know, you can put all the energy and nutrients in the soil that you want, but if there's no sunshine, nothing's going to happen, really. So it's just not the season. You can sow the seeds, but then nothing's going to happen. So the thing is, we wouldn't say to a bear, don't hibernate. So for me, I'm the type of person who sort of hibernates for a while because when the brain is in this historical mode, it's kind of hysterical because there's nothing it can do about any of this stuff. And it seems that those who seem to know this individual want to make me as the old sort of historical trajectory. They want to restore that history, that continuity of who I am, who they think I am. And I know I'm not that, and that's part of what makes me... Uh, manifest as angry in those or kind of annoyed or short in those type of interactions because like you don't know me I don't know me like get lost but now I don't really feel like that because I'm in creative perception so I'm not focused on these inner memories that aren't real and I wasn't even thinking about the memories but it's like a state where the brain is lost in history and there's nothing that can be done about it so in a way I manifest as kind of doing nothing because it's mirroring the state of the brain so I kind of learned these last few months how to get really good at doing nothing and enjoying it not being like like when one can surrender to doing nothing when the brain is in this season of history you know now it's changed into the season of mystery. It's like, wow, everything's mysterious. Everything is interesting. And now I can look at these things and, and find extrapolation and analogy and making little hypotheses that I likely will never test myself because I can speak two million words, but I can't study, make studies out of all of that. This, my point is that we can learn from our own subjectivity. We can have creative perception. What's there, we look at it and it will create meaning. But if we're projecting information from the past as thought, it's meaningless. It's old. It's boring. You know what? I don't know what boredom is. I don't remember the last time I was bored. It was many, 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 many years ago, at least 10. Um, so... Yeah, it's kind of like seasons. So we wouldn't say to a bear, don't hibernate. And knowing my seasons, I can hibernate appropriately and go into this season of the brain is just taking a rest. 
you can't be in that high energy all the time. And just like how they say with working out your muscles, you have to rest. So the brain might be able to work its neurons and grow for months, like five months, but then it seems it needs to take a three month rest. And I believe my brain really grows. It experiments with using new structures. It connects new structures. It's neurofluid. Um, and it also can die back. And I, I feel like one of the reasons why I speak the way I do is because I'm speaking from my brain cells perspective. My brain cells are telling me what to say about themselves. And they can do that if we tune into that. So, um, yeah, I feel like it, my brain is sort of like, like, uh, summertime when it has the energy, it's learning and growing and all this newness and wonderfulness. And then winter comes and it all starts to die back. We don't call the seasons bad. Well, sometimes we do. We say we don't like winter. But if we remove the like and dislike from it, it can be a different experience. I really don't like winter and I'm going to get the heck out of here before it shows up. But I've learned to be okay with the winter season in my brain, which this year happened to be in summer. So that was helpful because I could be outside doing nothing. So that's really long-winded. I'm going to stop here for a second and talk more about something else. I'm not exactly sure what I want to talk about today. It's 9.30pm, so I do have some time to talk to myself, so I will take the opportunity and first I want to share another sign that I've switched into the more energetic state of consciousness where history doesn't bother me so much and those who represent history. I've been wearing this deodorant for the last few months and not really caring that it doesn't really work very well, though it does smell good. I love the smell by Sage, no sorry, Essence Aromatherapy breeze. It's the bergamot. Smells good on the stick, but after a few hours on my armpits, my armpits don't smell good. So I went out to London Drugs and got this super potent stuff. It's very chemically. It's not like an eco brand of any kind, but it's the one toxic product that I use because Otherwise, it just doesn't really work very well. So I've been hugging people like this for months. Now with this, I can definitely do the full-on hug or like this kind of hug or that kind of hug. It'll all be okay. They changed the smell and the packaging. And I like the smell. Shower fresh. And I put it on earlier today. Yeah, it's pretty good way better than the other stuff so when I have that extra energy I start to make these changes towards taking care of myself just a little bit better because I have the energy to do so it's not like I have to think about it I just do it and then I uh, I notice that and I I've been taking one-third of azoflacone 
this one kind of crumbled up, so I put it in an empty capsule. Wait, where's the camera? There it is. But I feel a little bit less rested taking this amount, but I think it's for the best if I taper off this stuff, at least for a while. And I've been taking half a Benadryl and 150 milligrams of Trazodone and then 125 of Quetiapine. And yesterday I started researching a little bit about oxytocin. I have it here on my wall. Oxytocin. So it has glycine, can't really read that, leucine, wait, is that leucine? Yeah, proline, cysteine, cysteine, tyrosine, isoleucine, glutamine, asparagine, and, oh, proline, I think I got that already. So there's a ring here, and then there's this little tail. So I was looking up all these different amino acids that make up oxytocin and I was thinking well I could start taking some of these amino acids I already take glycine I already take tyrosine I take N-acetylcysteine which is the cysteine I don't take leucine or asparagine or glutamine or isoleucine so I was looking those up on Amazon to see if they're available and just so you know Dopamine is very simple, and it looks kind of like, dopamine is very simple, and it looks kind of like tyrosine. Whereas again, oxytocin is very complex. So I was looking up the oxytocin molecules, and they have a bunch of them, they have all of them on Amazon except for asparagine. But you can get D-aspartic acid. And then I was thinking, well, I still have these from Hardy Nutritionals. And I looked at the bottle, and it has isoleucine, leucine, other ones that aren't part of oxytocin. It has the glutamine, aspartic acid, proline. Taurine's not part of it. Tyrosine but I already take tyrosine. See, tyrosine. Um, glycine, gravel suppositories for emergency use if I can't sleep. And taurine. And since I don't eat meat, I felt like I could start taking a little bit of this stuff again separately, not as part of the Hardy Nutritionals program, but just to make sure I have all those other amino acids needed to make oxytocin. I was thinking, thinking of making a formulation with these ones in it, but I don't really need to do that right now. I can use up my bottles of this. When I used to take this in the Hardy Nutritionals program, I think it was taking 12 a day. And I only took two yesterday and two today in the morning without, with food. No, without food. 
just to make sure I have all these amino acids. Um, it's not good to have too many of the branch chain amino acids. Well, it is to some extent, but actually isoleucine and leucine are both branch chain amino acids. So, yeah, I'm going to use up some of this. And I have my tyrosine that I have been taking lately. This is the stuff that makes dopamine because look how similar it is. Very similar. Tyrosine has only one hydroxyl group. Dopamine has two. So it looks like this sort of does one of those carboxylation, transcarboxylation things or something. I'm just making this up. I did study organic chemistry, but I can't remember. So, and then it turns to dopamine. See? So, yeah, for some reason I was looking that up and I'm going to take a little bit of the amino acids just to make sure I have everything in case my brain wants to amp up on the oxytocin because the good energy is coming in. So I have to make sure that I have enough nutrition. And in researching the seizures and the epilepsy, I took a couple notes about how it says after a seizure, um, the person will have depleted nutrients because the seizure um, utilizes a lot of the nutrients and then there's not enough. So I'm theorizing that the same thing, similar process could happen to somebody who goes into mania and it could be that the brain goes into a different type of electrical storm, which isn't a seizure, but it is heightened energy in the brain. And that energy is there to, to maybe provide a, a blueprint for other molecules to be made. But if we don't have the right ingredients or if we run out then it's not going to happen so that's why I feel like making sure I have enough nutrition so the intelligence of my biochemistry can do what it needs to do with that nutrition and also um, a friend of mine sent me a couple of quotes by Joseph Campbell and there were a couple that kind of stuck out in my brain and what I realized was that Joseph Campbell in these quotes is making the leap from mysticism to madness I don't like the word madness but you know people taking LSD it's a similar phenomenon to say schizophrenia but that type of extrapolation isn't usually made and before I read these quotes before my friend sent me these quotes I wrote down to myself that a lot of times in the past I've said that certain people aren't making the leap between these things like these pathological phenomena as being an extension of what we can do with exogenous substances like LSD or different hallucinogens. 
And when it's triggered internally or by the universe, we don't really have control over the length of time that it's going to happen. And then when we can't, we can't control it and it eventually gets to be scary, then we end up pathologized. So in the past, I'm like, well, this person isn't making that leap in this book and this one's not like making the leap in that book. One book that I did see them making that sort of leap was called The Possibility Principle. And when I was writing in my book the other day, I wrote down, wait a minute. I'm saying there's a link to human potential. I'm saying there's a link to what have you. So maybe not many people are really saying that or, or pointing to that. But I'm pointing to it, so why would I be mad if other people aren't saying it? Because that's what I'm trying to show. So if people haven't chosen to show that, um, and unless they've been through this type of thing, I don't think they would have much reason or context or lived experience to really provide the necessary motivation to talk about these things. So who cares if nobody else is making that link? And I'm sure there are lots of people, but I haven't found them yet. That's what I'm saying, is there's um, a human potential element in this. And one of the quotes by Joseph Campbell, who I haven't really studied, but he says, quote, the psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. So it's the same kind of waters, but we haven't really figured out how to navigate it. And then another one was that, oh, and then to go with that, it's like, well, how do you stop from drowning? And I think that's what I've been learning over the years is how to stop from drowning. And then another quote by Joseph Campbell is a longer one. It's the LSD phenomenon, on the other hand, is, to me at least, more interesting to Joseph Campbell. It is intentionally achieved schizophrenia with the expectation of a spontaneous remission, which, however, does not always follow. So he's saying you take LSD, you kind of get an intentional schizophrenia with the expectation of spontaneous remission, with the expectation that it'll go away. And then he says yoga, too, is intentional schizophrenia. One breaks away from the world, plunging inward, and the ranges of vision experienced are, in fact, the same as those of a psychosis. But what then is the difference? What is the difference between a psychotic or LSD experience and a yogic or mystical? The plunges are all into the same deep inward sea. Of that, there can be no doubt the symbolic figures encountered are in many instances identical, and I shall have something more to say about those in a moment. But there is an important difference. The difference, to put it sharply, is equivalent simply to that between a diver who can swim and one who cannot. The mystic is endowed with native talents for this sort of thing, and following, stage by stage, the instruction of a master enters the waters and finds he can swim. Whereas a schizophrenic, unprepared, unguided, and ungifted has fallen or has intentionally plunged and is drowning. 
So that's similar to the shorter quote, but it seems that obviously Joseph Campbell is making that leap. He's not really making the leap to the human potential movement, but in a way he is by comparing schizophrenia with a mystic and just saying that the difference is that a mystic can swim often because they've been taught by some kind of master. A lot of times a person who gets into mysticism might already be studying with a master and then the mysticism starts happening and then they're able to navigate it with the help of a master. But that's not necessarily the way it happens with schizophrenia. Maybe we need masters more than we need people to pathologize us. That'd be nice. It's like, hey, you have schizophrenia, you have bipolar. Here is a spiritual master to be part of your team. And eventually, as you learn to swim, you'll be able to take off the training wheels of these brain tranquilizers. These tranquilizers that lower your brain function. That was something interesting that I read by reading this stuff on epilepsy. Is that from a book on the GAPS diet, which I got because it related to mental health and it has a section on epilepsy, apparently. Uh, it said the epileptic drugs are, are like brain tranquilizers. They reduce brain function. They don't fix the symptoms. They just basically lower the functioning of the brain. And I think that's what the psych meds do too. And it makes sense too because I feel oftentimes these these extraordinary and extreme and altered states and non-ordinary states are giving us clues to other capacities our brain has. So by taking meds that lower brain capacity, it not only takes away the capacities that the brain cells were exploring, but also lowers it below the capacity that it had before the problem started. Like people, before that trouble started, they might have at least been able to stay awake during the day and then they take these psych meds or epileptic drugs and then they're falling asleep all day long. So less functioning. And so it makes sense as to why that's partly why people sometimes have less executive function because these meds are lowering brain functioning. But they usually are like, oh, that's a part of the illness. I don't know if that's true or not. It could be partly true because I feel that these extraordinary states are trying to give the brain access to other areas of the brain or other algorithms or other firing patterns or ripples or what have you. And in that way, some of our executive functions could start getting tied into those um brain states because all, most of it is tied into the prefrontal cortex but if other patterns start happening some of the functioning could be trying to tie into that like I feel that the brain is trying to operate in a more holistic way in a more world-centric way in a way that would have us cooperate with each other and not compete as separate selves as it's not sustainable so then it puts the separate self functioning of the prefrontal cortex offline. And then 
when we're in that altered state, we still have access to functioning. But then when the energy goes away, we've lost what we started with too. But we can learn, I feel, to still divert those functionings to other areas of the brain. And I think that's really important because if we try to get the, the prefrontal cortex part online, that's all tied into a separate, the notion of a separate self, which isn't real. So when our executive functioning has diminished and this notion of acting like a separate self, um, even if we're more like a zombie, we probably are more in touch with actuality and that we're not acting in that way that it was, it's the way we've been conditioned to function. It's the way we've been educated to function, but it's not really real. So, and it was interesting. Today, I was listening to Steve Pavlina's Deep Abundance Integration call number 20. Day 20 in a row, and he usually talks for about an hour. And he was saying, he, he was giving a bit of a, a theory or a possibility or a hypothesis of, he talks about the, he talks about reality as a simulator. And he was saying that what he's noticed for himself in his own experimentation of his own consciousness is that if he's outside, he, and he's taking the subjective reality perspective, or he was noticing when he was lucid dreaming, when he was outside, the dream characters that would come to him would be kind of boring. But if he was able to lucid dream and put himself in a blank room with a few people, they got into this really deep conversation. So this is lucid dreaming. And then he tried to, well, he extrapolated that to actual reality, waking life, and the possibility that it's a simulator. And that if it is a simulator, it has certain constraints on how much it can calculate. So he was trying to make the point, okay, if I'm outside, the simulator has more to uh, render. So it takes more processing power. So the brain has to render more. Whereas if he is in a blank room, like his office with a blank wall, he says he gets better ideas because there's not... He's theorizing because there's not so much to render. So he's talking about like simplicity in one's working space. Mine's not very simple. There's stuff all over in here. And I'm not talking about this to tell what he was saying about his theories, but I realized it was kind of similar to, you know me, I'm always extrapolating. So what I realized was when a person is in so-called mania, they're outside and it's beautiful and they're talking to people and it's complex and we're more natural and nothing's a problem. And, and we go on like that for a period of time, whether it's months or weeks or years, I don't know. And then it's like the history that which wants to recondition us back into the old way of operation, you know, we end up in like a sterile psych ward. We end up in like a panic room in a psych ward and then admitted to the ward with these 
blank walls. And when we're out in mania in the world, we're like having these light conversations and everything's pretty much synchronistic and magical. And then it's like the brain can't render that anymore. Maybe it's run out of the capacity to move into that type of way of being. Just like we can't sleep forever. So we sleep for say eight hours, 10 hours, we get up and we are awake. Well, this whole like manic thing is sort of a different type of cycle, which could go on for days and weeks and months, but it eventually has to go back to sleep or go back to a lower processing. So we go from this infinite, beautiful, heaven-like realm with wonderful people and magical things happening. And eventually, if it switches to psychosis or we get out of control somehow, you know, the powers that be capture us and throw us in this little blank room. And now it's almost like that is a, like a, a congruent or parallel that's parallel to the functioning of the brain. So the brain was able to render this magical heavenly world and mania and had all this processing power to do so. And when it runs out of the processing power, we're in this room, when our processing power is so low, we end up in this blank room with maybe one psychiatrist asking us questions about our symptoms. When before we were just in this world of heaven and we were interacting with people and having a good time. So to me, it's he was sort of pointing to something that happens in actual reality of people who get diagnosed. They end up in these low processing, sterile rooms. And then instead of having these playful conversations with strangers out in mania, in heaven, kind of, we're in this room and we have this, this deep conversation with this very learned person who's there to condition us to believe that none of that was real. And really what's happened to us who is experiencing this subjective change from subjectivity and almost dreaming while awake to being objectified as a mental patient and being told what to think. Before in the subjective world of mania, we were making our own meaning and following it. And that creates behaviors that are probably quite different than our habitual programmed ones. And we can only, it seems, we can only process like that for so long. And then it collapses in upon itself. And when the brain can't process that much, we're in this very limited, sterile environment. And then we get conditioned as mental, mental patients and they eventually let us out to consensus reality where we then interact with each other based on I'm this object and you're this object and we're these billiard balls in a Newtonian world, which isn't, which isn't true. But... What I've been realizing lately is both are true. And that's something that I think Steve Pavlina has helped with now that he's experienced a mental health label. But he sort of plays with the subjective reality lens and he uses the objective reality lens. But the difference for me in my experience in mental health is I'm plunged into the subject, subjective reality lens by the universe for a certain period of time and I'm not the one that's putting the different lenses on. The lens is put on me. But then realizing that other people are in the objective lens and maybe not sharing so much of that subjectivity with others because 
they don't necessarily get it, though we think that they do. We think that they're a part of our dream, but really we're in this dream world and they're um, in an objective world. So realizing that other people likely have an objective lens. And that's pretty long-winded about that, but I thought it was interesting in terms of, you know, one could think that literally after the mania stops, mania where the brain is at way higher energy, way faster speed, we are able to process so much more. And in that, we're able to manifest so much more beauty and creativity and experience life in a totally different way when the brain is energized like that. And when that energy is withdrawn, kind of like a tide, then all of a sudden we're just in this like very sterile environment. And then we're reconditioned to think in sort of a, a sterile way about ourselves, a conditioned way. And it's like that's the world the, the brain can manifest. But one can learn to do that oneself too and just have a very simple place to go for a while so then one doesn't get captured. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying with that, but um, interestingly enough, I was talking to myself probably yesterday about how I feel like sometimes I'm speaking as my brain cells, like they're telling me what to say about how they work. So I'm trying in my clumsy way to put words to what might be happening at the level of my brain cells through these processes of non-ordinary states of consciousness and extreme states of consciousness and very energized and inspired states of consciousness. and. From that experience, in retrospect, I could sort of speak as my brain cells telling me what they experienced in a way. I don't know if it's really true, I can't see my brain cells, but I can try my best to speak what they might say. And then yesterday, I was watching this sort of cheesy old DVD from that I got with my NEDAC rebounder, which is the mini trampoline. And I was watching it because I thought it would show the health bounce, which is just the little bounce that you do for health. And so I watched quite a bit of this presentation, which was really good, even though it was from 1992. It was still relevant and informative. And when the doctor guy was talking, he was saying in this part, unrelated to the trampoline, that he said our cells understand English because he's talking about the cells and you know rebounding is cellular exercise and blah 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 but he's talking about other stuff related to cells and he was saying the worst thing you can do is tell someone like you have cancer and you have six months to live like a doctor because he said cells listen to authority so they'll kind of like be like, okay, well, I'm going to be out of a job in six months. This is what that doctor guy was saying. So then they kind of know that that's the end of their life based on what the doctor said. So his point was cells understand English. Well, 
I immediately thought to myself, since I just said this to myself the day before, I thought, they probably speak it too. They probably don't just understand it, they probably speak it. And that's the point I was trying to make, is that the brain cells can speak English as themselves, and other parts of the body too. Uh, yeah. So I made a note of that, and I'm going to check off that I talked about it, because I have this whole book full of notes, and another notebook full. The best is yet to come. Can you hear that, cells? Can you understand that, cells? The best is yet to come. And don't let dreams be dreams, and the universe, I got you. So that's the messages I try to send to my cells. And when I send them messages, they send me messages back. And there is no me, I'm just a bunch of cells. And that bunch of cells together speaks English. So the individual cells, I feel, can speak English too. And that's how they, they talk, speaking as the cells. And I already talked about that. So the guy on this NEDAC rebounder DVD said, serious diagnosis impairs the immune system because cells communicate with each other. So if they can communicate, I'm, I'm sure they can have that level up to the level of human communication because they are part, they're what makes us up as humans. So, you know, maybe the words come right out of the DNA. We don't really know. And I remember once reading somewhere that there was like a single nucleotide mutation that led to the arising of language. I don't know if it was like Richard Dawkins' work or something. I haven't read his stuff really. Because um, from what I've heard about it, it seems kind of strange. But I think he talks a lot about memes and replicating memes. So that could be good. But um, this doctor on this NEDAC DVD was also talking about cellular environment in terms of water. But I was thinking for myself about cellular environment in terms of the vibration of sound or the different vibes that are in the brain. So is the brain being bathed in a bunch of repetitive thoughts? And I realized that a lot of the time my brain cells are bathed in meaning that eyes can see in a creative perception. So it's something new and subjectively meaningful. And it's not bathed in the vibration of thoughts that I've been programmed with. It's creating new meaning, which makes life feel subjectively meaningful. And the more subjective meaning we feel and the more we have and the more we can create it, and the more we know we can create it in the future, even if we're not able to create it right now, say if we're in a quote depression or something, it gives hope for feeling some kind of meaningful life at some point because we have that capacity. We don't have to rely on finding that meaning in repetition, which can never be meaningful. So 
Um, yeah, and then on this neat activity, now whenever I share something about what somebody else said, I'm usually going to extrapolate that to my own context, which doesn't usually have a ton to do with what the person originally said. And so he was talking about exercise as the common denominator of exercise being opposing gravity. So like repetitions of dumbbells or squats or something like that, opposing gravity. And then he brought up the point that the body cannot tell the difference between acceleration and deceleration and gravity. So not that it's the same thing. He was saying acceleration, like putting the pedal to the metal is real and putting the brakes on, deceleration is real and it's felt as we put the brakes on, we lean forward. We step on the pedal, we lean back. But the body doesn't know about that, um, the difference between that and gravity, which is, you know, the force of up and down. Or it's not a force. Yeah, it is a force, the force of gravity. So I wanted to extrapolate this to something I've thought about before, which is how the field of consciousness could be similar to the field of gravity or part of the field of gravity um, entangled with it, or it could be just similar in that it's a field of some kind of force. And I was realizing that in a way, when a person's brain speeds up and goes into mania, consciousness has kind of sped up. And then when we slow down and we're starting to um, slow down and reattach the old paradigm way of the brain working, we're decelerating. Okay, so the field of consciousness is sort of like a field from, say, fear and the lower states to higher state of love. So fear to love, and there's this field of consciousness. So when we're accelerating in consciousness, pretend it's like a vertical axis, axis um, we feel this love. And then when we start to decelerate, we feel it as fear. So what I'm trying to say is if consciousness is a field like gravity from love to fear, then it could also be possible because the field of gravity is like this and we can't tell the difference between acceleration and deceleration along a vertical axis or maybe in an elevator. The body can't tell the difference between that and gravity. So what I'm saying is that it could be similar that we can't really tell that we're that we're that we're going up and down in consciousness because it's more of an acceleration forward and then a deceleration back but that's the same as the field of consciousness that's the same way we experience it and that might not be a very good illustration but i think that what it's saying too is when we speed up we in 
so-called mania or higher states or more energetic states of the brain, we feel this love. We don't feel it as accelerating. Just like, you know, if we're accelerating in a car, we feel the pressure of our back on the seat, but the body might just feel a change in gravity. It can't tell the difference. We might know the difference because our eyes are open, but um, what I'm trying to point to is that I feel that there's something going on in terms of an acceleration in consciousness and then deceleration in consciousness. And the acceleration is felt as love and the deceleration is felt as fear, you know, which is like the same as um, some kind of pressure on the back, maybe making us lean forward. So, um, if we can't tell that we're really speeding up or slowing down, this could be the point. I'm seeing this right now. This could be the key point. I'm talking to myself here. Is that in the so-called bipolar, for example, using that word very lightly, the brain speeds up it accelerates in consciousness and has a higher energy level. And then it slows down we experience fear and it's decelerating in consciousness or sort of going backwards. But this is the trick that happens is we might actually feel like we're going up in the levels of consciousness in the field. That's like, um, I said vertical before, but I went like this, I meant horizontal. So anyway, we might think that we're accelerating or going up the scale of consciousness vertically. Like we get to the height of love and we think I'm God or I'm the savior or I'm going to save the world. And really we're accelerating. So we're experiencing that same thing. We're not really um, going up the level. So this could actually relate to what Joseph Campbell said about the mystic swimming delightfully in the same um, water that this person with schizophrenia drowns in. So the thing is we might be accelerating in, in bipolar mania or certain altered states in schizophrenia, but we might actually think we're transcending the levels of consciousness and think I'm God forever, I'm going to save the world, but we can't maintain it. And we can't maintain it because really our brains had the gas pedal stepped on and then it starts to slow down at a certain point because, um, you know, there could be energetic or nutritional or um, like objective physical type barriers to maintain that. Just like um, if we're accelerating in a car, we can't necessarily accelerate forever there's a top speed that the vehicle's gonna reach and then it's just gonna stay there and then there's no more acceleration. And um, then we decelerate and we eventually stop. So we could be mistaking um, the, the spiritual journey that one might go through with the help of a master through some kind of mystical path of like transcending the levels of consciousness like Dr. David Hawkins talks about. But then there could be this other way that it happens that we accelerate, the brain accelerates so we think that we're transcending, but really the brain is just sped up temporarily. 
So we need to possibly take what we experience with a grain of salt or or something because it's not going to be maintained. And um, maybe certain mystics are able to maintain it, but it's not necessarily bad that it's going to be not maintained because if we accelerate forever and other people's brains aren't accelerating, then they're not necessarily moving at the same speed we are. So we accelerate and then we decelerate. We kind of go like this when other people are sort of trotting along at like um, a brain speed that is a little bit slower because people's brains have been conditioned to move pretty close to the same speed at the speed of repetitious thought which is um, a mediocre limited thing and I feel that people whose brains speed up they go beyond that you know that's probably why people talk faster etc is because their brain is speeded up so we can talk faster or we're perceived as talking faster because the brain is accelerating and people I actually feel the people who have a lot of conditioned thought and don't see and perceive creatively and, and see new things that create new thoughts or insights um, it's almost like the same as taking a tranquilizer one is being tranquilized with repetitious thought it's like being on a treadmill versus being in a race car so people are on their treadmill and then when we start to accelerate you know you can't if the treadmill is going one speed a person can't accelerate they'll run off the end of the treadmill and so people with thought like repetitions like what am I going to do today? What am I going to eat tonight? Oh, this happened yesterday. I don't like myself. That person's this. This person's that. La, 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 la. It's like moving at the speed of human thought. And then when the brain speeds up, a lot of times we talk faster because we're having a lot more insight and ideas come to mind. And a lot of times it's nonsensical because there's a lot of it that's really new. And that's why we sound different and um, kind of non-coherent. It's coherent in our own inner subjectivity and our brain's moving faster, but to get it out objectively doesn't really happen on the first try. It usually just gets us um, imprisoned psychiatrically. So, uh, I don't know what else. I'm going to look at what else I want to talk about today. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.